So let's look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, and let's read what it has to tell us, understanding that this is God's inerrant, infallible word. It says this, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This is the word of God, and may God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray this morning as we examine these beautiful verses, this tremendous truth about our Savior, that your spirit would help us illuminate these verses in our hearts, in our minds, teach us how to apply them to our lives. We ask that your word would accomplish its purpose and you have, that you have for each of our lives, ministering to our needs, and that our time together would honor and glorify you. Lord, I ask that this message points us to Christ and reminds us of our need for a Savior. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we continue Paul's letter to the Colossian church and to the believers, we've now moved past his introduction as an apostle. He introduces himself in the letter. We've moved past his personal greeting and past his thanksgiving for their faith in the message. He has stated the basic gospel message that his fellow servant Epaphras had preached to them. And so Paul now wastes no time in getting to his point. And that was his style in his epistles to the churches. He would, he would state the facts, the depth of the facts, and then he would pivot to the implication of those facts and then how those facts should be treated in the life of the believer, the application of those facts. And as we see this morning, this important message dealt with the person and work of Jesus Christ. So let's consider the basic gospel message. That Jesus, the Son of God, took on flesh. He lived a sinless life fulfilling all righteousness. He offered himself as a ransom sacrifice for the sins of his people. That he was crucified on a cross and he died. And he was buried in a tomb. And he rose from that tomb on the third day, ascending into heaven, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for his people. And that all who repent of their sins and believe in him will inherit everlasting life. That's the basic gospel message. Right? That's, that's what we all are saved with, that is that message. So we would consider this in college terms, Christianity 101. So what Paul now is presenting in these verses is an advanced teaching, right? It's more advanced, on the object of the Christian's faith, the one in whom we believe, Jesus Christ himself. He's taking his readers from their basic understanding and seeking to fortify their foundation by deepening their understanding of the true identity of Jesus. Kind of like steel rods that run through a concrete foundation or the deep piers that anchor that foundation to bedrock, Paul seeks to give them a solid, strong, and true doctrine on the deity of Christ. That he is God and that he is eternal. That he is the creator and was not himself created. And that he exerts sovereignty and power over all things. 
And one of the questions we must ask ourselves is why was this the main message? Why was this so important for Paul to emphasize? Was there error in what Epaphras had taught the Colossian believers? One would think that maybe Paul is trying to correct some error. But as we have read so far in the letter, there's no mention of that error. As a matter of fact, Paul has commended him in his service to the Lord. Was there false teaching within the church? No, but Paul has been made aware of a false teaching. And he, this letter serves as a warning, as a preparation for the church, if you would, to strengthen them uh, in the face of this heresy or false teaching that is, that is approaching the church. This false teaching was a heresy. It would become known as the Colossian heresy. And it was a mixture of philosophies, but at its core was an attack on the person of Jesus Christ. A rejection of his flesh and a rejection and a denial of his deity. It would threaten to shake the foundation of the Colossian believers and lead them into false works, false worship, and idolatry. And so he begins this section of the letter with one of Scripture's fullest statements concerning the person and work of Christ. And so if you're taking notes, I commend you, and this is the sermon summary. Jesus is God, and as God, he created the world and all things in it. He is the very goal of creation, and he upholds all things that he created. Read that again. Jesus is God, and as God, he created the world and all things in it. He is the very goal of creation, and he upholds all things that he created. Today's message is titled, Christ the Creator. We'll examine Paul's words in verses 16 and 17. We're going to extract three truths from this. Obviously, we have to have three points and an alliteration, so this is, this is what, what, what Scripture presented itself for us this morning. Number one, that Jesus Christ is the source of all things. He is the source of all things. Number two, that Jesus Christ is sovereign over all things. And number three, that Jesus Christ is the sustainer of all things. So he's, not, he's both the source, the sovereign, and the sustainer of all things, all of creation. And then we'll close our time together by examining how we should respond to these truths about Christ. So let's begin our walk through the passage, beginning with verse 16, and under the title, Christ, the source of all things, tells us this. For by him, we're going to stop right there, haven't gone very far, and we, and we see immediately that we need to identify something. When we see the word for or therefore within Paul's writings, we understand that we should stop and find context and find out who is he talking about. Who is Paul referring to? Who is the subject of this passage? Who is the him? So we looked at the previous verse to tell us who the subject is. We look at verse 15. Pastor Laramie preached on last week, says this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He refers to Jesus Christ, of whom Paul spoke as the firstborn of creation. This doesn't refer to a, a birth, as a physical birth, as we 
as Pastor Laramie explained, but it refers to his position and authority over all of creation. He is the firstborn of creation. Scripture repeats this truth often of Jesus' identity as God. The writer of Hebrews writes of Christ's relationship to the Father when he writes this in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. It says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Paul will later state in the same letter to the Colossians, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. That's Colossians 2, verse 9. And Jesus himself spoke of his relationship to the Father when he said this. He said, I and the Father are one. That's John 10.30. The identification of Christ as the firstborn of creation, it was important for the Colossians. It was, it was important for them because it was going to be a bedrock truth that they would need when they heard this false teaching. And it would remind them that, of what was false about it. But it's also important for us. Firstborn of creation signifies pre-existence. He existed before creation. It signifies his rank or position. The firstborn possessed the inheritance, the authority, the leadership. He precedes everything that follows after. And so Christ is not just a good teacher. He's not a major prophet uh, or a leader of one of many religions, as some would have. Paul's telling us here is that he is, in fact, God incarnate. He is God who rules over all. And so he is the subject as we start off this verse. And so continuing in verse 16, it says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. So a tremendous statement about the deity of Christ Right, that not just some things, but all things were created by Christ. And so, again, Scripture talks to this. Uh, again, in John chapter 1, verse 3, tells us this. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So, God the Father is the architect of creation. He determined to bring all things into existence. Jesus, his son, is the agent who brought God's plans into reality. And this speaks to the eternal existence of Jesus as declared again in scripture elsewhere. Looking back at John, John 1, 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Further in verse 14, he writes this, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. These verses speak to the eternality of Christ as the second person of the Trinity. That he has always existed. There was never a time in which he did not exist, or he was not himself created. And this is a difficult concept for us to wrap our minds around, because this is we're finite people trying to understand an infinite God. And the Holy Trinity, it's, it's a mystery to us. It, it's, it's shown to us in Scripture. Um, again, any time that we try to relate to it, we, try, we end up invariably bringing one person of the Godhead down to our level 
so that we can try to associate. And that obviously is going to lead to false teaching, it's going to lead to error, it's going to lead in some cases to heresies because of a false doctrine about God or about any one of the persons of God. And so that's what's going on here. As we try to make God like us, but scripture tell us, tells us that God is not like man. He's not like us. The writers of the confession phrased the, uh, phrased the idea of the Trinity and, and, the, and the truth of it in, in the second chapter of the, of the confession of God and the Holy Trinity when they wrote this. They said, the Father is not derived from anyone, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. All three are infinite and without beginning and are therefore only one God, who is not to be divided in nature and being. He is the Word made flesh. He is the great I Am. This is Christ. This is, this is the subject of what Paul is talking about, who created all of creation. So he continues in verse 16 by saying this, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. So we know that Christ is the creator of all that we can see. But it also tells us that Christ is the creator of things that are invisible to us. So that tells us that there are things that we don't see that, that do exist. But even those things, Christ has created them, right? And so these all, all things, obviously, as we talk about, as we talked about this morning um, in Sunday school, you know, the visible earth, uh, the, the universe, all the living things, the plants, the animals, ourselves, these are the things that are visible. These are things that we can see, we can touch, we know that they're material, the material physical world is created. But it also includes those invisible things, right? The angels and invisible spiritual powers. So the false teaching of the Colossian heresy minimized the preeminence of Christ, lowering him to the same level as the invisible powers, angels, and rulers of the unseen world. Thus, it rejected both his humanity and his deity by trying to pull him somewhere in the middle, right? He was neither fully, fully, uh, fully man and he was not God. That was the teaching, the false teaching. And that's what made it a heresy because it denied his truth. So, as we continue, we now see, we have seen how Christ is the source of all things. Yeah, he created all things, things that we see things here on earth, things in, uh, in the universe and in the heavens, visible and invisible. But now we also see that how we create, in creation, he is also sovereign over all things. Now continue reading. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. The dictionary defines sovereign as a person who has supreme power or authority. As the Lord God, Christ has dominion over all things, including the angels and invisible spiritual powers. And so this addressed another false teaching that was going to threaten the church. And that is that angels, who were spiritual beings, were to be worshipped. And so scripture has a lot to say about the role of angels and the role of creation in relation to the creator. Here are just a few. First Peter chapter 3, 
verses 21 and 22 says this, Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Matthew 28, 18 tells us this. These are Jesus' words. So then Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So Christ is as full authority, and this includes over angels, over the things that, that are not seen, and this would be the understanding and the, the doctrine that, that the Colossian believers needed to have to identify these false teachings as they came to them. Christ is the ultimate authority. Our, today, people are still prone, we're still prone, right, to worshiping angels, apostles, church leaders, and servants of the Lord. And we do this by elevating them above their role and purpose, and we make them into idols. We should consider the Apostle John's, John's reaction after he was shown a vision of things to come by an angel of the Lord. And we find this in, uh, recorded in Revelation chapter 22. And I think it's a, it's a great ex exchange between John and, and this angel, and it really shows us the understanding that, that the angels have. Um, and we are, can be misguided, yet it shows us in Scripture that the angels understand um, just what, what that role is and what their role is. When he, writes, he writes this in Revelation 22, verses 8 and 9. He says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And so that is what we need to remember. Worship God. Even the angels worship God. And so we need to remember that. Worshiping God is the purpose for which we were created. You and I were made to worship him. The church, as we gather together, we glorify and worship God through our unity in Christ. We are the bride of Christ, and that is how we show our worship to the Lord. Our lives should also be a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to the Lord. We worship God through our daily fellowship and the service that characterizes our lives as believers. Our lives are a worship to the Lord. So to quote the angel, worship God. Is our role that is our that is our what we were created for that's what we'll be doing in eternity worshiping and glorifying him and his majesty and his and his for being the wonderful god that he is and mighty god as the king of kings and the lord of lords christ sits on the throne with authority over all creation and his subjects submit themselves to his leadership on earth kingdoms rise and fall Kings reign and are overthrown, all according to the good pleasure of God's perfect will. And we see in, in Scripture often examples of how God controls and directs the course of human history. At times, it's Christ's will to use visible thrones and rulers to carry out his plan. The prophet Habakkuk pleaded with the Lord to judge the wicked people of the tribe of Judah. God responded, by using the Babylonians to carry out his discipline. Find that in Habakkuk uh, chapter 1, verse 6. 
much to his dismay. He didn't understand how, the God, could, how God could use, uh, in his eyes, these seemingly wicked people to carry out his judgment. But God has control over the world, over his creation, and he can use all things to accomplish his purpose. At other times, he uses pagan kingdoms to restore his people, as he used the ruler of Persia to deliver God's people from exile. As written in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 1, it says this, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him and gates that may not be closed. So again, the Lord is using this, this king. He calls him his anointed. He is his instrument to use in the deliverance of his people. And we see this throughout, throughout Scripture. Obviously, we could talk about, about how he says he, uh, how Scripture tells us he raised up Pharaoh so that his, his, uh, his, his mighty, mightiness of God could be displayed over the greatest leader of, of earth. Um, so just a beautiful testimony and an example of how God really is sovereign over all of his creation. Importantly for the believer, though, Christ has sovereignty, has sovereign authority over all spiritual dominions, rulers and authorities, including the dominion of darkness. He has freed us from the bondage of sin, as Paul previously wrote in verse 13. He wrote this, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So this transfer wasn't just a symbolic act. It wasn't a paper transaction on a financial ledger. But it was a real purchase. And we were purchased with something of great value and cost. And that's the body and blood of the son of God. As we consider Paul's words, we need to be reminded that it is Christ who is sovereign over our lives as well, and that we belong to Jesus. Right? We're no longer slaves to sin, but we are slaves to Christ. So we might wonder, what does this look like in our lives, in the life of a believer? What does it mean to be a slave to Christ? What does it mean to be transferred into his kingdom? He transforms all areas of our life. And it's not overnight that we move away from some of these things, but the Lord continues to mold us into the image of his son. We still sin. We struggle with sin. But we now have the conviction of sin. And we are drawn to repentance by the spirit who lives in us. And that same spirit is transforming us. We do not possess all knowledge, but Christ has opened our eyes to seek his truth in his word. We still fail, and we have moments of weakness, but we turn to Christ who strengthens us. And while we're not promised immunity from the hardships and trials of life, right, the bad and the ugly of life, as, as we often say here, but he's given us an assurance that he is always with us. For those who are spreading the false teachings, this statement affirmed Christ was supreme over both man-made philosophies and mystical spirits. As we complete verse 16, we read this. All things were created through him and for him. Here we see the purpose of creation. For the glory to the Son of God. Jesus has the ultimate position of honor and holds divine power all over all of created order. 
Everything in creation was made by Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus. Romans 11.36 tells us this, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. About God's sovereignty, R.C. Sproul said this, If God is not sovereign, God is not God. If there is even one maverick molecule in the universe, one molecule running loose outside the scope of God's sovereign ordination, we cannot have the slightest confidence that any promise God has ever made about the future will come to pass. Such is the completeness of the sovereignty of the Lord. There's nothing outside of his sovereign control. So we have seen that Christ is the source of all things and that he is sovereign over all the things that he has created. Finally, Paul tells us that Christ sustains all things. We read in verse 17. He tells us this, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. All things stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and are subjected to his sovereignty and power. To be before signifies a hierarchy, a preeminence, and an authority over all that comes after, to be behold, behold, before all things. The wonder of creation, right? the perfect orbit of the planets. Uh, as we learned this morning in Sunday school, the tilt of the earth. We could go on and on, right? The length of our days, our seasons, which in Texas there's only two, summer and a, about a week in January. Um, the amount of oxygen in our air, right? Too much and we incinerate too little, and obviously we starve for, for breath. Even the magnetic, magnetic fields above the earth shield us from the cosmic rays of the sun. And even in these magnetic fields, God's beauty is displayed in, in the aurora borealis, right? The, the northern lights that light up the sky that show the, the effects of those magnetic fields. But that protects us. It protects his creation because it cares for us. We learn in elementary school that when, when we learn about magnets, that when we take two magnets and we put, put them on opposite polarities, right, they, they come together, right? They pull each other together. It's where we get the term opposites attract. Turn those magnets on their end at the same polarity, and you can hardly push them together, right? They want to push each other out of the way. That's basic electric theory. That's, a, that's the, 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 the basis of which electricity that comes out of our walls is based on is how magnets work. In his book titled, The Atom Speaks and Echoes the Word of God, author D. Lee Chestnut writes this. In the nucleus of an atom, there is a mystery. From our ordinary experience with electricity, we should expect the positive charged protons packed into the tiny nucleus to fly apart. Yet most atoms are stable things. Something holds them together. What is it? The writer of Hebrews tells us, finishing Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. He says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. It is Christ who holds the universe together, the seen and the unseen, the visible and the invisible. And he is also willing and able to hold and sustain the people that call upon his name. Whether they be crises of broken relationships, 
spiritual battles, addictions, struggles with health, financial difficulties, feelings of loneliness, or dealing with the loss of loved ones, it is Christ who holds our lives together and sustains us. As many of y'all know, um, about two weeks ago, my father-in-law went home to the Lord after a, a long battle with a, with a very terrible illness. And as in the case of these long, drawn-out illnesses, uh, there were many trips to the ER, late-night trips to the hospitals, transfers to out-of-town hospitals, in and out of care facilities, all leading up to hospice care at home during his final days. And it was during these times that the Lord extended his strong and caring hand to my father-in-law and provided reassurance, uh, comfort, and peace in the most difficult and challenging of days, reminding him always of the hope that he had in Christ. Our Lord also provided his immeasurable gifts of love, patience, endurance, physical, emotional, and spiritual strength, clarity of mind, and compassion uh, to my wife and my mother-in-law, who were constantly by his side to the very end. He does this through the work of the Holy Spirit, who lives inside us. The psalmist asked, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Indeed, our Lord and Savior Christ holds the universe together, but he also cares for us, and he knows what we're going through. He knows the depths of our sorrow, the highs of our joy, and he is there with us at all times. But Christ also sustains us and has sustained our family through the prayers and service of his people. From acts of mercy by our brothers and sisters in Christ, to continued prayers, phone calls, and visits from our pastors, to the care provided by the hospice staff, our family never felt alone or abandoned. Our story is not unique. As many here have traveled this road before us and could testify to the Lord's mercy. And as a matter of fact, right now, there's several of us, as we know, that have been experiencing very difficult times in their lives and are going through very difficult times right now. This message is a reminder that at every point along the journey, Christ sustains his people through his word, by his power, and through the servants of his church. Philippians 4.19 says this, And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. That's a promise we can stand on. Christ has created us. He is sovereign over every part of our lives, and he sustains us through it all. This is our God, and he is worthy of our worship, our obedience, and our service in Christ's name. And so, as we consider these words, and we consider what Paul has written here about, about Jesus Christ as the source, the sovereign, and the sustainer of all things, we would conclude in asking, how are we to respond to these truths? And how do we guard against false teaching and heresies as we do that? Well, the first thing we need to do is we need to worship him and praise him for all that he has created. Exalt him as the maker of all things. He is worthy of our worship and worthy of all worship. But how do we do this correctly? 
John chapter 4, 23 and 24 tells us this. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. In spirit means from a genuine attitude of love. God knows our hearts. He, he, he knows our motives. He knows our purpose for worshiping him. So it needs to be from a genuine attitude of love for, for who he is and not as a superficial act of righteousness that only seeks to glorify us or shine a spotlight on us. But we're also supposed to worship in truth. That means that we worship according to the revealed character of God and Christ as revealed in Scripture. The subject of our worship should be Christ and not ourselves. It should be reverent and focused on his glory and not ours. We talked about this in Sunday school this morning about how there are just... We have to be careful with our worship. We have to know that not every worship song portrays Christ in a way that is consistent with Scripture. And so that's why it's important for us to know these doctrines, to know these understandings about Christ, so that we don't get led astray, that we don't learn something wrong that takes years to undo because of a false understanding that was planted into us early, maybe early in our Christian walk. And that's what Paul's doing with the, with the Colossians. You know, there's, there are a group of believers relatively new. And like us, when we were new believers, we knew the basics. But then we learned doctrine. And that's why it's so important that as a new believer, that we come under solid teaching, that we, that we gather together as a church so that we can sharpen each other, that we can be under, under leadership that shows us uh, scripture, explains scripture to us, because that is where we get our depth of understanding of Christ. And that's what protects us and keeps us from being led astray. Secondly, we should study and meditate on his word and his instruction. He has given us, the, the instruction he has given us for all righteousness in living and leading our families and in instructing our children. Romans 12.2 says this, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by, re, by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Whether it's arguments about the beginning of life, gender identity, male and female who created them, the definition of marriage, one man and one woman, or calls for social justice or justice in general. We must guard against the influence of the world to redefine God and his character and his purposes for creation. The deity and authority of Christ is under constant attack, and it's, it's all around us. And it's, it's, we see it every day, um, not, on, not only on the outside, but we can see it on the inside, not only the inside of our families, but the inside of our churches. And Paul recognizes that the greatest danger of the church was not going to be from the outside, but it was going to be from the inside, because it's from within that the church could be fractured and divided if its members did not have a true understanding of the deity of Christ. And so that's what we're trying to do. We try to learn more as we go to his word, meditate on his word, um, ask and, 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 and sit under solid teaching so that we can understand the truths of God's word. Third, we must submit to his lordship and authority over our lives. John 14, verse 15 says this, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. We should hold ourselves accountable to one another, confessing our sin, 
and repenting our sins to the Lord and to each other. And we should submit to the instruction and the shepherding from those whom God has placed in our church. God has placed men in our church to instruct us, to guide us, to correct us, and to discipline us. And we have to take that um, in the way, if it's done according to God's word, then we have to uh, take that and submit to that, knowing that it's their goal and their love to shepherd us and to protect us and to guard us. We need to trust in that. Fourth, we are to serve him. As members of the body of Christ, he has placed you in this church for good works, to use your gifts. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10 says this, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace, so we should be continually praying for and encouraging each other. And God has gifted all of us in different ways. And we see those ways, and those ways are, are, are uh, shown to us by others. We need to use those gifts for the, for, the, for the building up of his church and for each other. We should rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. All as we serve one another's needs. Finally, there's another, another important truth that we need to know about Christ the Creator. And that is that God has appointed a day in which each of us will meet him face to face. And on that day, he will judge us. And he's going to judge us according to his perfect righteousness and his holiness. And we're going to be either found innocent or guilty. And we're going to be found innocent if he looks upon us and sees us clothed in Christ's righteousness because we placed our trust in Christ and in his finished work on the cross and that he took our sins upon him. He'll tell us, well done, good and faithful servant. Or we're going to be found lacking. Lacking because we placed our faith in ourselves or our works and anything other than Jesus Christ, because we followed these philosophies of the world or these other ideas that denied Christ for who he is as the Son of God and as of God. We don't want to hear those words, depart from me, I never knew you. That would be a terrible, terrible thing. But we have assurance. Scripture gives us assurance in our salvation. It tells us how we can be saved. It says, repent and believe, and you will be saved. To repent means, first, that we acknowledge our sin. We acknowledge our standing before a holy God and our need for a Savior. We ask the Lord for forgiveness and ask that the Lord would view us through the lens of Christ. That we turn from those sins, do a 180. We turn away and we follow Christ. That is repenting. We follow Christ and he leads us day by day. Doesn't mean we're always perfect. We stumble, we fall. We, we talked about that, but we continue to follow Christ and his guidance. And secondly, we believe. We believe in Christ. We believe in what he is, who scripture says he is, that, he did, that what he did on the cross was complete and finished and sufficient for our salvation. Repent and believe. 
Christ has created us. He is sovereign over every part of our lives, and he sustains us through it all. This is our God, and he's worthy of our worship, our steady, our obedience, and our service. As our worship team comes forward, we're going to have a chance to meditate on God's word this morning and pray to him that he would give us guidance in how to apply this word to our lives, um, how to help us where we, where we struggle, and just however else he prompts us. And you can do this, do this at your seat as we sing this song together. First, let us pray.